Thanks for downloading the 14th in our series of episodes of the C-Suite podcast that we're recording in partnership with the European PR agency Taito and their own Without Borders podcast where we are interviewing leaders of unicorn companies to find out about the key issues, pain points and challenges that startups face and how they can address them with a strategic approach to marketing and communications. My name is Russell Goldsmith and my co-host for this series of interviews is Taito's founder Brendan Craigie and today we are thrilled to be joined online from Colorado Springs in the US by Mar- Mario Ciabera, founder and CEO of Quantum Metric. Uh, Quantum Metric raised $200 million in Series B financing in January of this year, which had them proudly announcing on their website the fact that they were the first unicorn of 2021 with a valuation exceeding $1 billion. Welcome to the show, Mario. As always, it would be great if uh, we can start with a quick introduction to the business. Sure. Thanks, Russell. Thanks, Brendan, for having me. It is an absolute pleasure. Yeah, on the business, Quantum Metric helps businesses become truly digitally customer obsessed. And we specialize in a category that we call continuous product design. We essentially help businesses listen to customers' digital touch points at every aspect of their daily life, from mobile banking, buying clothes online to, to booking vaccine appointments. You can think about your life, and we are all online today, whether we're on our mobile devices and our laptops. We are somewhere digitally connected. As we interact with those brands, how do we ensure that our customers on the side of those brands are having the most incredible, digital, simple, fast, quick experiences that they can have? Now, if I've got this right, this is actually the fourth business that you've founded. So before we get into sort of like understanding more about, obviously, this particular company, it would be great to just understand what you've learned from the companies you previously founded. Um, and also, if you're doing anything different this time around. I, I found uh, with the similarities between all of the businesses is finding a pain point and, and going after, being passionate about that pain point. I don't think that you can start a company unless you're in love with the, the problem and then the solution. Specifically, I love creating product, and it's been exemplified in all of the four companies. It's, it's, we've nailed it early on at that product market fit. But what I've come to find out here at Quantum, and, and the differentiation is like the first couple of companies were in the tens of millions. And obviously, as you mentioned, we're in the billions. Um, to get to that scale, you can't just create great product. You actually have to focus, most importantly, on people. And so what I've learned on that journey and what's differentiated this business is get the greatest talent, get the greatest people on your team, and then everything will come into place. Picking up on that point about continuous product design, could you maybe um, elaborate a little bit more on, on what actually that entails? I kind of read in a few articles, you know, people have seen it as a kind of a cross between, you know, you're both addressing DevOps and addressing marketing teams within organizations. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Continuous product design, I would love to come to you and say, guys, I'm super smart or someone on our team is like a genius. But unfortunately, the truth of it is we just looked at the best organizations that we were working with, the best organizations that, you know, maybe we can say things like digital natives, but but you look at a company like Netflix. I don't know how old you guys are, but if you're as old as me, uh, you used to get DVDs in the mail from Netflix. They're not a digital native, despite what might people, people might think today. And what, what made Netflix so successful was they adopted Agile, right? They adopted continuous uh, delivery, continuous integration. They took all of these these methodologies that made their teams move faster. But if you look at where they moved faster, they move faster on tech on the tech side of their business. What, what Netflix and other organizations figured out was it had to be beyond just tech. We had to understand from the business perspective, 
how do we how do we listen and learn to customers about about our customer experiences? How do we listen to our customers at a faster pace? Agile and all those other uh, methodologies they helped technology teams do that. But how do we get the entire organization aligned? And I think what differentiates companies today is like for the same reason that I, I will follow my sword and say we're not the smartest people in the world per se. You don't have to be the smart, smartest organization. You have to be the fastest organization. And that speed is in speed of listening and learning about what is delighting your customers and what's frustrating your customers. The two words that I went around maybe two years ago as an exercise, asked our customers, describe quantum in two words, or sorry, one word. The two most common words were speed and confidence. And, and, and that speed and confidence aligning the entire organization around the customer. So quantum metric introduced continuous product design, to the world uh, in, in, in March of 2020, but it was truly uh, an effort of learning from what do the best digital organizations do from uh, an organizational alignment, from a culture perspective? How do they get their teams to do the simplest of things, things that Jeff Bezos says over and over, but not many of us fully understand? Listen to your customer, obsess around your customer. This is the foundation of continuous product design. What's at the heart of that in terms of what's unique about your value proposition um, compared to say what, what maybe your competitors out there are offering? Yeah, if I can, if I can name company names, maybe I'll exclude names. But uh, but I'll but if we think about marketing analytics, who's using it? Guess what? Marketers. <laughs> you don't see engineers in the marketing analytics tools. You don't see marketers in you know the the log analysis tools or the the server side analysis tools. And I can go ad nauseum with different tools and different silos that we create in these enterprises. And by the way, they're all valuable tools. The problem is they misalign our teams. So in, within a team, awesome. Let's use the marketing analytics tool to align with inside of our marketing team. But when we think about how do we align our entire organization, what I love to ask executives, if I called the leaders of your teams into one room and I said, what is the number one thing that we can do that would have the biggest impact to the business? My question to you would be, would they all answer it with the same answer? And the worst part about it is they all say no and they laugh and they say, and, and you know, the worst part about it is they all use data to prove that they're right, that the number one thing is what they're saying. But it's just because they have a different perspective. They have a different set of data. So what's different about quantum is we, we need to align the entire organization around something. What are we going to choose? I, hopefully it's not marketing analytics. Hopefully it's not uh, server-side analytics. Hopefully it's not, and so on and so on. Hopefully the only thing that's common amongst all of our organizations that we're serving our customer. So by, de fact, by default, it, it makes sense. Let's align our organization around the customer's experiences, the customer's viewpoint or perspective around customer data. And so what Quantum does is it collects first party, the experience that everyone is having on a website or a native app, and then we can replay it as if we were standing next to them. So you never get a developer to say, it works for me because we, we fully understand the experience. But most importantly, how do we aggregately understand Oh yeah, you know, of the thousand things that we could do better or the thousand experiments that we want to do, which is the experiment that may lead to the best outcome? Which is the the friction point or glass wall that we can remove that would have the biggest impact for the business? So, it's really about aligning the organization around customer. So, when when you think about like the individual point solutions of, you know, digital analytics, experience analytics, product analytics, real user monitoring, marketing analytics, like I can go ad nauseum with all these different point solutions. They're valuable, but what's differentiated about quantum is that we pull all of that together. Uh, and align the entire organization. I was I was reading that um, recently how and Gartner was saying that one of the biggest barriers to digital transformation is that departments 
aren't talking to each other and aren't kind of collaborating. So it sounds like not only are you solving a, a technical problem, but you're actually helping to address almost like an organizational problem in terms of those different departments working in silos. My, my favorite comment here you know, in the last couple of months, I was talking to the chief digital officer of one of the largest Fortune 10 companies in, in, in uh, the US using quantum. And he said, Mar, do, do you know what quantum metric is doing at you know, our company? I said, I'd love to hear in your words. He said, quantum metric is changing our culture. And like, you know, no one on our team goes out and says, hey, I'm selling culture change. Would you like to buy some? Uh, unfortunately, that doesn't sell. Um, we got to be more concrete, more specific. But the, yeah, it's, it's exactly that. It's, I was actually talking this morning with um, a customer opportunity in, in the UK this morning. And what he was describing was the Spotify culture and how they have tribes and so on and so forth. And so he's talking about how the word that they use at their organization is autonomy. Now, imagine autonomy when everyone's using different sets of data to make decisions and they're all scattering in different directions. Doesn't make a lot of sense. But what I've heard from uh, one of our customers, the way he phrased it was, I finally have my organization playing off the same sheet of music. And you think about leaders, they're like conductors uh, at an orchestra. How do I get everyone to play the same music? And that's music to your ears. When everyone's playing a different sheet of music, doesn't sound so great, does it? So absolutely. It's about culture change. It's about aligning an organization. And again, the only thing I can think of, which is why we've positioned ourselves here, let's align around the customer. I mean, for millennia, we've watched people come into stores. We watch them happy and delighted. And we double down on that. We, have, we see them get frustrated with a product or service, and we iterate that to make it better. And that is normal and physical. I think what quantum and continuous product design is how do we do that on digital? It's not part of our muscle memory and our DNA. We don't know how to do it on digital. Digital is new to humans. So teaching humans how to listen to customers through bits and bytes, that's what we do and at an aggregate scale. And then connecting with the empathy of when you see the experience, you can make it better. You talked in your kind of recent interview with TechCrunch about the fact that you're focused on addressing friction and frustration. I, I was wondering, thinking about the kind of customers that you're working with, what have been the top common challenges that they've been facing and how have you been approaching helping them? Yeah. And I, I would say, I would like to divide the company into, into two things that we address. One is like finding and fixing problems. The other one is how do I get the teams to learn faster about where the delight and they, you know, like I get a question of like, where do I even experiment? You know, like, how do you decide what, exp I was actually talking to an organization and they said, well, we took a look at what Amazon did and we copied everything. And like, that's, Sounds good, but I don't think I think you can do better. I think you can you can understand that your audience is unique to you and how to use data to make those decisions. But yeah, the comment, so I'll focus a little bit on the friction points because we all get friction points really well. My 13-year-old, she was turning 13, it was her birthday during this pandemic. And um, you can imagine she wanted a new bed. And normally that process would be she'd go to the store, she'd lay on the beds, test them all out and find something she loved. But she ended up having to go online because it's a pandemic. And uh, she laughed. I, I remember that I will never forget this moment. She, she clicked the add to cart. I won't name the company name. <laughs> Not a customer yet, but hoping to make them soon. But she clicked the add to cart. She found the bed she wanted. And she laughed at dad, you have to come look at this. Nothing happened when she clicked add to cart. Like, you know, and you can imagine if you're in a physical store and you're like, hey, I'd like to buy this bed. And everyone's like, just ignoring you. I mean, that's essentially what it feels like when you click that button. And you know what most people do when they click the add to cart button? They click it five times when it doesn't work. They raise click it. You know, you've been on an elevator before, I bet, Brendan, right? Kurt Russell, the elevator doesn't come fast enough. You push it five times. It's the same thing with that add to cart button. And so what we found was we can aggregate around these behavioral indicators. We also found technical indicators, you know, like, like an API slow or it's failing. And what we're looking for is, 
that friction point, did it lead to less likely to success? In the, in the world of e-commerce, it's easy to talk about e-com. Did it lead to less likely to purchase? And so what we're doing at Quantum is we're taking a petabyte scale analytics platform, feeding it like tens of thousands of what I would call guesses or maybe suspect segments and using the aggregate analytics saying, okay, evaluate the tens of thousands of guesses and tell me which one of them leads to a negative outcome. And then I want to highlight that. I want to quantify it. And now I can prioritize and say, this is a $17 million issue. This is a $5 million issue. Hopefully, Brendan, uh, you, you know, Russell, you guys don't mind. I don't, I don't talk about pounds, but we can talk about pounds. We can talk about any currency you guys like. That's absolutely fine. <laughs> <laughs> Dollars is fine. Okay, great. But yeah, so being able to, to specify a dollar amount and then tie that to the experience, I can show you you're losing $17 million because my daughter's clicking add to cart and there's 600 people like her trying to buy that bed and the button doesn't work. So just really helping focus on, you know, there's thousands or tens of thousands of guesses. I want to I want to show you the exact thing that's going to make the biggest impact to your business. What about the fact that I mean obviously it's been a pretty tough year for a lot of companies during the pandemic. Has that business uncertainty, you know, impacted on on potential clients of yours, you know, the the attitude to adopting your technology? Yeah, I mean, I would say you know, my, my, I had a really fun conversation probably about six months ago with an with an executive that we've been working with for about eighteen months. You know, incredible success, incredible momentum, incredible adoption. They're loving it. But I asked them this very simple question: How how are things for you? How's the business? You know, the business is up. Like the business is up even during the pandemic. But more specifically, they had a physical presence and they had a digital presence. Digital was about ten percent of their business. Now digital is ninety five percent of their business. And so I, I said, "How are things?" He's like, "You know, Mario." I would go into an exec meeting. We would talk about the brand. We would talk about the store sales. We would talk about the product that we'd be creating. And if there's any time left at the executive meeting, they might ask, hey, how's e-commerce going? Now, when he walks into the room every week, the first question is, how's e-commerce going? Right? It is the center of the business. It is how all of us are doing uh, our transactions online. So uh, yeah, I mean, COVID, uh, it, it's, it's a massive change in all of our lives. But in the world of digital, I, when I go around rooms in digital, I mean, there's, there's a little bit of like angst and, and anxiety because we're all under so much pressure to eight times our business in just a few weeks is what happened to many of these people. Um, but it's also an exciting time where the folks on digital are the center of attention uh, and getting that right. I mean, you can have the best products, the best marketing, the best pricing, the best distribution, logistics. You can have all those things right. But if you don't get the experience with a customer online, an app or a website, Everything else doesn't matter anymore. Obviously, I can assume it's accelerated your growth as, as a company. I mean, were you set up for that, though? <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's funny the way you asked that question, because we were set up for massive growth. We saw the trajectory. The thing is, like everybody else, and I'd love to be um, an oracle, and I would have seen around maybe two or three month window. But, but what happened in, to all of us in, in March and April and May of 2020 was this kind of contraction. Like I was resisting. I literally, I felt like I was playing football and I had the stiff arm and I'm like holding out the contraction. I'm like, no, I'm not going to let it happen. But I think in May, you know, we kind of felt that like, wow, we don't know what the future holds. And, and we contracted the organization uh, a, a small amount thinking about, hey, we don't know where the future is. About two months later, and I wish I had that foresight, two months later, it all came into play. Wait a minute. This is actually a massive accelerator for our business. Everyone's moving online uh, and we need to scale with that. So absolutely, like we weren't, we were kind of set up for growth. We kind of contracted a little bit and then now it's been massive. And obviously, as you mentioned early on, the $200 million Series B, that's about 
investing in our forward growth. Like we cannot get enough feet on the ground, although they're all digital feet nowadays to say it uh, out loud. Um, but we, we, we need more team members. We're hiring. I mean, we're, you know, I have four interviews today to give you an example. Um, I have about two to four interviews every day. We're, we're hiring uh, at a scale we've never done before. Let's go back to that, that 200 million investment. Because obviously, as I said, that that's what I think took you to unicorn status. And I've also read, there's a couple of things that I've read. One, that you're the first tech unicorn in Colorado, uh, Colorado Springs. But also I read this thing where you you said you wanted to actually be a dragon rather than a unicorn because dragons eat unicorns, which I thought was quite quite an interesting comment. But I mean, how much has that changed the perception of, of the company reaching that that milestone? Yeah, I mean, I think on becoming a unicorn, especially a unique one in the world of Colorado Springs, the first one, I've gotten a couple messages from people I didn't know, like, hey, this is amazing. Like, it's great to 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 see this kind of success in Colorado Springs, to see tech expand outside of the the umbrella of of Silicon Valley. But I, I think like just every entrepreneur in the early stages is vying for airtime, is vying for their voice to be heard amongst the sea of entrepreneurs. And I think there's this breakaway moment when you hit unicorn uh, status is that like this is this is a real company this is there's something we vetted this we should be listening and when you when you want to sell a commodity like we're the you know we're like uber eats but you know we're called something else right like that's easy like people understand it but when you want to create a new category it's so much more difficult and it's hard for to get organizations to buy into that that vision when they're not quite sure like, is this a company that's going to be around in a year? I don't want to invest in it in changing my culture to investing in, in, in adopting a new methodology if this hasn't really taken off. And I think when you hit that unicorn status, of course, it's basically the world screaming, this has taken off. Don't miss the boat. So, you know, I think I think what it allows us to do, yes, uh, faster introductions uh, to, to new opportunities uh, to be able to connect with with more executives without having to go through the ranks to get to them. Um, but I, I think that you know when when I talk about the company and its and its focus is on people, I, I think the the biggest highlight is we're getting just the caliber of talent that we get at volume is just so impressive. Like you know I, I've been I've been inter- I interviewed someone yesterday and I was like wow this person's like better than I am. And my job is to find people better than me at every one of the jobs that I have and hire them. So it's quite an honorable job to have. Um, and, I, and I would say that um, it, it's just so much easier when you, know, you make that breakaway threshold, when you kind of escape the, the pull of gravity and you're, you're headed out into space, um, that escape velocity. It just it's weird, but it actually makes everything a little bit easier. But you know, when you have the demands of of your board saying, "Okay, but now we need to double again," uh, I will say it. It also is still a little bit harder as well. So when you get this inertia, when you get this massive size, obviously things are a little bit harder. But you know, when you get better talent um, or access to, to better talent at, at, at greater velocity, it makes it <laughs> it kind of offsets that 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 scale challenge that you have as well. On that note about hiring talent, in terms of bringing on people given the fact that you're Colorado Springs, as opposed to Silicon Valley, as you just talked about there, do those top talent, you know, does that matter where, where you're based? <laughs> I, I used to get that question. I, I love it all the way in UK, you asked that question. But no, when people, <laughs> you know, when I was working with folks in the US and thinking about investors and so on and so forth, that was the question I got a lot. Um, you know, the company from the beginning has completely been distributed. So we have about 20, you know, 25% of our organization is here in Colorado. Um, by the way, we have about 30 to 40 in the UK. So, so just to be fair, we, we're across the pond as well. But the rest of it is, is distributed here in the US. And I've always thought, 
And I've actually gotten a lot of pushback from Silicon Valley and investors like, hey, this is not going to work distributed. And of course, haha, the whole world's distributed. Of course it works. Um, and the, obviously quantum has been successful. But we've always thought about where's the best talent. We've never limited ourselves to Colorado Springs. At the same time, we've, I would tell you, where, wherever you are, there is massive talent there. There isn't a lot of tech unicorns here, as you mentioned, that's the first one in Colorado Springs. So you might think that there's not a lot of technology talent here. They are. A lot of them actually work remotely because there isn't the tech talent to go work here. There's no hub here to go to go aggregate around. But but they're here and you've got to go find them. You got to honestly, I would tell you the best uh, analogy I could give you is you got to shake the trees. And when you shake them, these talented engineers fall out. Um, they're work- they are working remotely already. And you can find them. We found some incredible talent here in Colorado. So, But of course, the world is our uh, sandbox and playground uh, for everybody today because we've all realized remote work actually works. And I'll tell you the secret if you want my secret to remote work. And this is, and, and this is, and this is part of the, the journey that I've been on. Of course, like four or five years ago when we started this remote work process, and I still see it. Uh, I saw it over the years, and I think people are figuring it out, you know, because they're forced to now. But I think the biggest fear people had about remote work: Hey, Russell, did you get up and work today? Right? I, I don't see you every day. Are you working hard today? How do you hack that? Right? How do you how do you stop wondering is Russell is Brendan working hard today? And I'll tell you, we have three attributes that we hire on, and we still believe in these today, uh, and we still hire on these today. And I ask every single candidate: These uh, tell me about what they mean to you. Passion, persistence, and integrity. Passionate people show up to work and they love what they do. If you're passionate at what you do, Russell, I don't need to call you and say, hey, Russell, did you work today? I've actually had the, prob- the opposite problem where if you're, if you're passionate, Russell, I'm like, Russell, are you making time for your family? Because like work is fun, but you got to make time for your family too and make time for yourself. Persistence, the only difference between success and failure to me is that people that fail stop trying. So you, you absolutely can persist. And with integrity, I have found people that had the first two that can make an impact to the business but I don't enjoy working with them when they can't be honest with themselves, with me, their peers, our customers. So those three, passion, persistence, and integrity, I think they're a growth hack, a secret to how do you make a remote culture successful? That's great. We're, we're a fully remote business, actually, you know, with a team across multiple European countries. And uh, yeah, and no, I think it's, it's really exciting being able to kind of work with the best people, regardless of location. It opens up so many possibilities. Thinking about you guys now, you, you've you've kind of reached the milestone that you've got to today. What, what's next for the company? How do you see things evolving? Yeah, like like Russell said, I am really excited about creating a dragon, and and the dragon is not about some financial outcome. We have six company objectives that we've shared with our entire organization. Now, I won't bore you with all six unless you want to ask about them, but I will I will tell you the number one item. It's happy people, healthy culture. So it is not about, you know, and, and hopefully our investors will give me a second before they jump to a conclusion, but it's not about returning shareholder wealth. It is not about hitting some specific goal. It is not about creating a dragon and making a 10 to $50 billion company, which we will become. You know, it's creating a space where people can be happy and having a healthy culture. And when we do that, I know that we will exceed our shareholder expectations. We will deliver on, on their, their goals. The best way to do it is around people. So what does the future hold? Yes, like I see our geographical uh, space expanding. We, we have continuing to dominate new, uh, new industries. I mean, the reality is like, who has a website? Who has a native app? That's our audience. You know, but of course, we're not going to go after everyone all at once. We're going to you know, solve it for a specific industry and kind of repeat that process across industries one at a time. Um, so you see the geographical space uh, expanding. You see the industry space expanding. Obviously, we're growing our team to 
service all of them. We're creating new product. We're investing in you know machine learning and AI to like how do we automate these processes? You know, there's turning points in your business. One of them was when we invested in AI and built some of the data science into our platform. People are like, oh my gosh, this like does my work for me, and so on and so forth. So continuing to advance all of that, but all of that under the umbrella of I want to have fun. I want to have a good time. I want our team to have a great time. If you look at our Glassdoor rating, if you talk to our team members, what you'll hear over and over again is how happy they are. And that is what's most important to me is let's just create an environment where we can have a good time. I, I hate to be uh, a drag, but Brendan, Russell, you know, you live and you die. And what we do in between, no one cares how much money I get buried with on my gravestone. But what, so what I think for me, the purpose and happiness for life for me is Let's have a great time and let's let's share that happiness with others, share it with our team, share it with our customers. And I hear it even from our 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 customers, how excited they are about the culture that we have at Quantum. And 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 I in fact I have an email from this morning about one of our one of our larger enterprise customers. And she just shared like how our, our team members come to her meetings and 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 make her smile every time that they're on a, they're on a call together. How delightful is that? Like, shouldn't we just be having fun? Yeah, that's great, really. And well, it certainly comes across from from you, Maria. Out of curiosity, is that the similar blueprint that you've had in all of your businesses, or have you kind of really come around to that more as you've progressed onto your business? Yeah, I mean, the first companies are one to three people, so the absolute answer is really quickly is no. Uh, they were just so small that you didn't you didn't have that. They were, they were you know, they were, one was a B two C, you know, within the world of iPhone apps. So there's very little interaction with the with the consumer. Um, the other one was was sold uh, early on to to a larger enterprise, so it didn't it just didn't have the time to expand and scale. It was actually just one person. So I think I made myself happy, but actually, actually caused a lot of stress for myself. A, a lesson to uh, to young and early, um, maybe maybe even inexperienced entrepreneurs is no reason to stress so much. But I would tell you, uh, it, it wasn't the same. But you know, at, at Quantum, my brother, he's an entrepreneur. He raised 120 million dollars. Had 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 an extreme success with a company called Rebel Systems. He's on to his you know sixth or seventh endeavor today. You know, I learned from him, watching him and the way he interacted with his team. He had you know six, seven hundred people, and I watched the way he did it. I have. Um, you know, we announced John Chambers joined our board last week. John is a mentor, advisor, but most importantly, a close personal friend now. And I've watched the way that John interacts with either his portfolio companies, with other executives, his team. And what was amazing about John is he he led 80,000 plus people at Cisco and his culture resonated throughout 80,000 people. And so what's really cool, I think, is like, you know, when you have a small company, you, you, you know you can control the culture. You're interacting with the 50 people. When you get to 80,000, he doesn't know all 80,000 faces. Yet his culture was pervasive throughout the organization. And I think I, I simply just try to learn from others and watch what they do and you know, look at you know, who can mentor me, who can, who's done this well before, and I want to learn from them. On that topic of building the culture, though, how have you managed to do that, particularly over the last year, if people have been working remotely because a key, a key part of that culture and all those things that you've been talking about, about making sure we're having a great time and all that kind of stuff is a lot of that is it, you learn that when you're working with your colleagues and, and in the same offices and stuff, which obviously you you don't have at the moment. So how have you managed to to build that company culture over the, you know, as I said, over as you've grown, but also particularly over the last 12 months? I, I get this question a lot, a lot from our candidates because they have talked to six people in our company. They feel it. And they're all scared because they've, they've worked at other organizations where they've lost it. Um, and so I've been very intentional about how, you know every meeting that we have. We have one every two weeks. Uh, during the early days of the pandemic, because I was a little bit nervous about all of our 
feelings. Like, I mean, me is included. Uh, we had it, you know, once a week, um, but we moved to, I think everyone's comfortable with every other week. We do an hour and a half meeting. The first thing we start with is our people. We introduce the new people in our team. We, we talk about passion, persistence, and integrity and ask someone kind of ad lib. Anyone have an example of where they've seen that in our team in the last two weeks that they would love to, to highlight? But I interview every employee. I get together in groups of teams of kind of random people across the organization to make sure I have my, my ear to the ground because as the organization grows, I'm not as closely connected to everything that's happening. But I think that you have to be intentional and you have to find a way to connect with people and you have to just you have to highlight those core values over and over. It's not lip service. And, and people keep asking me, why are you interviewing four people today? I mean, that's three hours of my day. I don't know how long yours are, but I think still it's only 24 hours of the, that hour change. I think I had a 23-hour day. It kind of sucked for, for on Sunday. But anyways, it, it was be intentional about how you spend your time. If you tell me that people are the most important part of our business, but you're telling me I can't spend three hours of my day on people, I mean, that conflict is a problem. So, so really being intentional about where I spend my time and our, and our leadership's time on what's most important to our business. Look, I would love to double or triple our business this year. I think the best way to do it is focus on our people. Thank you for sharing all of that. It's really insightful. You know, one of the kind of big themes of this, this um, podcast series we've been doing is sort of diving into issues around communications and culture. And it'd be great to understand um, what's been your kind of approach to raising the profile of your company and differentiating yourself in, you know, in such a, a noisy environment. Yeah. I mean, externally, I w- you're right, is the question. Um, it's hard. It, you know, it, it's hard. And I, I would tell you, when you sign up to start a company or be the CEO or an executive leader, what you're signing up for is solving problems. And when you go to create a category, uh, it's, it's, it's like you're basically asking for punishment, right? Because if you want to just do what someone else is doing, but you're going to do it a little bit better, it's easy. Hey, we're going to replace this product in your organization. We know you have it. Here are the pain points. Aren't they your pain points? Yes. We can, we can do it. Let me show you. Awesome. It's the same price, cheaper, more, whatever it might be. Like That's an easy conversation. When you come in and say, I want to change your world, it's really, really hard. And to do that, you have to position yourself as a thought leader. You have to connect with executive leaders. When there were events, when we can get together in physical, you can have that happen almost as accident, You know, a little bit more, more planned, but it can happen very casually. Now it's a little bit, and I hate to say the word, but I'll say it of a hustle. You know, it's a little bit more intentional and a lot of work around um, getting together with, with thought leaders, with visionaries, with early adopters, and, and, and communicating like, look, I, I've worked with organizations just like you, and here's what we did. Is that something you're excited about? And of course, I wouldn't ask the question if I didn't have a good hunch, the answer would be yes. And then if it's, if it's no, that's fine. I'd love to learn like why. What are you, what are you more focused on? And, and let's see what I can, can learn and understand about that, you know, that direction. But yeah, the, the communication, I mean, creating a category is hard, getting thought leaders. I think what I'm, what I'm, one of the things I'm most proud about it from that context of the business is if you think about part, uh, vendors, and I hate the word, but you know, ISVs, software companies, SaaS companies, whatever you want to call these companies that like quantum, a lot of executives don't really buy into it. They, 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 they sign a check and like, leave me alone and they get my business done. What's really exciting about quantum, because we're changing culture, executives, senior level executives from Fortune 100 companies are being spokespeople for us. They, they're sharing the impact that we're having to an organization. And so, you know, I, I think like, how do you do it well? That No one wants to listen to me because, you know, I hate to say it, Russell and Brendan, but someone might label me the word, I'm a salesperson. Yeah. And you know what? Maybe I am. That's fine. I'm okay with it. But, you know, it's hard to get that confidence, that trust foundation with someone that might be selling something. I get that challenge. And so best way for me to share and communicate 
Let me get people that have used the product, that have changed their organization. Let me have them tell their story. And it's so much more of a connection than it is for me. So I think, you know, when you ask me that question, like, how are we doing it? I think getting champions, getting spokespeople, especially senior level executives, which are really hard to, to, speak, to get to speak out on behalf of a, I hate to say the word again, vendor. I think that was transformative for our business. That's brilliant and very powerful, like you say. And thinking about you and, and your kind of, I think the, the role of the CEO and the leader, it's kind of critical in terms of how you, you're presenting yourself out there. I just wondered, how do, how do you see your role as a spokesperson and and what have you learned along the way, either in this business or on previous businesses in terms of kind of representing the company as that, as that figurehead? I, I remember... Man, it was probably 2010, and you know Steve Jobs is stepping down. I'm like Steve Jobs, schmobs. Like it's one guy, it's 10,000 people, with all these developers. Like, what is he really doing? And you know, and, and I and I saw a hiccup. You know, I think Tim has done a great job, um, but but I was amazed about what the impact one leader can have. I, you know, looking at John and 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 kind of him leaving Cisco, and it would come up with like 50 of these examples where leaders leave, and it, and it has an impact. And I wanted to be naively telling you, like, you know. What does a leader do? I, I, I'm not into sports. I love running, climbing, skiing. This little black eye I had, I got in a fight with a half pipe this weekend on Sunday uh, at Copper Mountain. And I'll tell you, ice and, and inanimate objects always win, uh, in case you're wondering. Um, you know, but I do have my face imprinted on the ice at Copper. If anyone wants to ski uh, down it, I, I fell off 15 feet. And I think my face has you know, been imprinted into the ice. But um, you know, I, love, I love sports. And what, one of the things that happened to me along this journey is, you know, turns out, there's a lot of sports culture and competition in the world of sales. And so um, I've been able to interact with coaches, other incredibly uh, successful sports leaders. And what I came to find out about coaches is they do that same thing as, as executives do in their companies, is they squeeze talent out of people. Like I used to think like, hey, look, you're, these guys are smart people. What can, what can a leader do? What can a coach do? But somehow coaches, somehow leaders inspire their team to give 120%. Even though that they want to give 120%, you get more out of it when you motivate them, when you, when you get that, that inch of passion that you know what's in there, but you got to squeeze it out. You got to go find it. And so you know, I think that that communication role of a leader is how do you sound the alarm? You, know, you, you guys are in the UK. You've seen Braveheart, right? I'm kidding a little bit. But you, know, like you look at that movie and, and what a leader. I mean, obviously, this role plays itself out in sports and war and everything. But how you, a human being can inspire our other humans to over-deliver, to over-achieve. And I think that is the role of a leader, to, to be that, that rock of you know, resilience, of, of inspiration. You know, when, when COVID hit, I, you know, I'll be very direct. Like I, I didn't want to show my fears. I mean, of course, I have my own fears. I have a family. I'm worried about what's happening too. But the team is going to turn to you and say, like, look, if he's freaking out or she's freaking out, then we're all going to freak out. And I think leaders need to have that, that solid resiliency that's what people flock to. That's what people need out of the leadership. So that, that's my perspective. That's something I've learned along the way, especially in times of trouble and fear. You know, I think your true colors shine. And, and I, I think for me, it was learning about like, what does a true leader do for an organization? I think that was the, probably the biggest impact of the pandemic for me. And maybe you might have answered this question or at least started to answer it, but what's been the biggest communications challenge you faced along your career as a, a CEO? And, and why was it the biggest challenge? The organization changes 
every double. So 10 to 20, 20 to 50, 50 to 100, 100 to 200 and some, 250 to 500. I talked to other CEOs, founders. I talked to, you know, Chambers has seen it. You know, he's seen like every movie, uh, every playbook, and, and he shares kind of his learnings. But, you know, how do you change and adapt when your organization is changing underneath you at each one of these doublings? And so changing, like, for example, I knew everybody. I knew everyone's name. I knew their wives and their husbands and kids' names and, and dogs. Now I don't. And it's, it's angering to me a little bit. Like, I, I miss it. I want to be able to connect. And so I found ways to, I can't, I don't have time to connect with every single uh, team member for an hour every week, right? It's not possible. Not enough hours in the, in the week. Um, so I've changed my behavior to do like eight to 10 people in a group. And I've gotten incredible feedback. Like, yes, thank you so much. This is amazing. Just to to make sure my voice is heard, to hear your voice and so on and so forth. So I've heard that from a lot of executive leaders. Some of my coaches have advised me to do that. I did it. And it was tremendous uh, feedback from from the team. So I, I think it's just adapting as the organization is changing. That's what we have to be mindful of. It's it's a living thing, this, these companies. And so the communication has to change uh, as the company grows as well. You're clearly a, a confident speaker. Um, but you know, have you always been a natural communicator? Just going back to some of the things that you've just been touching on there, you know, or have you had to kind of formulate a plan? Have you had to be trained into, into, into the role? Because not every company founder is a natural communicator. You know, they may have a great idea, but they don't necessarily want to be the front of, of, of the company. I, I can only laugh uh, of what of what the community, the comms team here at Quantum they'll, they'll probably dig up a video from like nineteen or sorry nineteen but yeah maybe nineteen but but, <laughs> but definitely like twenty sixteen where I'm sitting there on stage so nervous kind of fumbling through my words I get off the stage I'm like you know kind of sweating and, and yada yada so um you know I, I think it, I think like everything that we do is about practice and you get into that zone you get to comfort level I was on. Uh, a media interview just like, two months ago, and a friend of mine's a, a reporter, and and I shared it with her, and she's like 16 seconds, and I'm like, what? She's like 16 seconds in, you got comfortable, and your nervousness went away. But those first 16, 16 Mario, you sucked. So we didn't use those words, but it was something like that. I mean, I felt like I sucked the first 16 seconds. So I, I think like I, I think it's just practice. If you do it enough, you know what I've also learned. Like I, I remember speaking with. Bonin Bao, uh, he, he's an amazing orator. He's probably one of the best I've ever met. And I, I met him the night before we were in Monaco for, for an F1 race. And um, the night before, he was totally chill. Just having, We were having a beer together, just relaxed. The next day, he goes up. He, he went on before me. He's dripping sweat off the stage, animated, incredible presence. And I'm like, I have to go on after you? Are you kidding me? Like, you know, I'm pretty confident. But still, like, this guy was just incredible delivery. And I said, "Hey, Bonin, how the hell did you do this? Like, how do you how do you deliver like that?" And he said, "Mario, the secret is simply practice. I've done that pitch seventeen thousand times. I could do it in my sleep, and every time I do it, it gets a little bit better. So I think repetition, practice. This is how you deliver on, you know, that, that oration. If if I have to talk about a topic I'm not confident about, I don't really know it. I'll probably get really nervous pretty quickly. But if, if you want to talk to me about people, about our organization, about my journey." I mean, I know this, I was there. It, it, it's natural. So I think, I think speaking to things that you're confident about can help you project your confidence. Who have you been more nervous in front of? Would it be pitching for money, speaking to a client, talking to your, your team? Oh God, all of those are easy. I'll tell you, media, and somehow in my mind, when I'm talking to, to media and we're recording and I know it's going to be broadcast live because like, you know, that, it, some, it just gets underneath my head and, and it messes my brain. I don't know why, but it, it makes me nervous every time. 
I, I'm still working on it. Uh, I still have a little bit of a journey to, to do with that. But um, no, the, the rest of those, like they're kind of like, I've done it so many times to investors and, and so on and so forth that like, that's a walk in the park. I have fun every time. So Mary, let, let's just take the conversation away from work for a moment because I can't help noticing the, the book on carpentry there in your bookshelf behind you. Tell us a little bit about how you relax away from work and whether or not that particular book is uh, is relevant. Yeah, I've got an oscilloscope on the shelf behind me. I have a, a little sign about I'm a, I'm a private pilot. I love carpentry. In fact, the house I'm in, it's quite a large one that I built over 18 months um, designing, architecting, and doing some of the carpentry, in fact, as well. I, I think in life, we have to have our passions. I am extremely passionate about quantum and the work that I do here. But I have to have other passions. I have three children, and they're a passion of mine, 9, 11, and 13, Ella, Cody, and Tessa. And what I've learned from a great father uh, that I highly respect, he shared with me the best way to, to lead your family, your children, and interact and have this relationship with your children for his perspective was to find a common passion that you could share with your children. So mine are, I don't have one, we ski together. Uh, we've skied 25 days this season. In fact, this you know black eye I mentioned that I have here was, was a little bit of a run-in with some ice this weekend. But we play piano, we play Minecraft, we, um, we do some woodworking together, and uh, we do at least, uh, we, do, we, we go rock climbing together. I was thinking of the, the biggest passions that I have in my children, those are them. And so you know, I, I think that you've got to find some passion. You have to engage. You know, I talk about passion, persistence, and integrity is important to our culture. Have you ever seen someone without passion? It's kind of boring. And so finding something that you love and just chasing that dream, I love it every day. I think it's what brings me to life. It makes me excited to wake up in the morning. And so, yes, in short, Russell, I love woodworking. I made my children's crib. Uh, I'll, maybe after the, the podcast, I'll send you a quick photo of it. I've made a poker table. I've built some of the walls here in the home. And I love it. I love making things come to life with my hands. I also like uh, coming things coming together with my mind and, and, and doing this thing on digital. But uh, yeah, I think, I think life is about being passionate about anything and then following that dream. Tremendous. Uh, Maria, we've got one final question for you. We've actually asked this of all our, our unicorn leaders. So it'd be great to get your thoughts on this. If you had to go back in time and speak to your old self, what guidance would you give yourself about communications? And, and also what steps would you encourage yourself to take in order for you and the business to excel in comms? In my brain, I have the answers. Like I have the answers to vision of the company, what the product's going to do uh, and, and how this is all going to grow. I, I literally have it right now. It's, it's like I'm like holding it down and squeezing it in. It wants to blow up and explode out of my head. And I don't often share it with everyone. Sometimes out of fear, like, well, that might get off to a competition or maybe it's not important. Like we have other things to talk about. But the vision of the company is so important to get everyone aligned, to get everyone behind that shared goal, that shared mission. I, I wish I understood it earlier. Um, and it's it's not like, you know, it was so terrible and the, and the company went to pieces without it. It would just have been more, it, it's, it kind of happens when you get past maybe 20, 40, 50 people. When like, I don't have spend my day with each employee. Um, when that happens, like you've got to get people around a shared mission and have them understanding where is the company going? Why are we doing this? It can't be just for money and it's definitely not, but explain it to me, help me understand. And when you get to where I don't have these touch points with each team member every day, that's 
def- it's, 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 it's mission critical to have a mission. So, um, you know, having that mission statement, having that vision shared across the organization, I think I tell, and by the way, I think of myself quite young still, Russell and Brendan, um, you know, I hope you believe so too. Um, but, um, but yeah, I, that's what I would tell my younger self. Um, it's just something I've learned along the way. I, I think we, we kind of learn these, these little changes that happened. Um, you look back to like, wow, maybe a, a year ago, six months ago, I wish I knew that. That's one of those things that, you know, I kind of, it wasn't destructive, but you know, it would have been better having done it just a little bit earlier. Mario Sierra, thank you so much for joining us online and uh, chatting today. It's been absolutely brilliant. Thanks so much. Yeah, Russell, Brendan, my pleasure. Uh, I, I enjoyed it. Thank you guys for the time. Wow, Brendan, um, he was excellent. <laughs> what, what did you think of today's uh, chat? Well, I kind of really wanted to ask at the end whether I could be offered a job because, um, you know, he was just incredibly inspiring as a as a leader. And he started talking at the beginning about how his number one focus was having a, a happy team and a happy culture. And you can really pick up on everything that he does to ensure that that's the case. And, you know, I think probably no other leader has focused on that in such a kind of a committed way as as him. And it's obviously paying great dividends for the company and the, the morale of the business. So I think that was kind of my big takeaway from this was just the real opportunity that comes by driving a culture that's completely anchored around having a happy team and happy people that, you know, how that can kind of really pay off. And you can tell how, like you said, the the inspiration that can only, um, I'm trying to think of the right word, it, it, you know, it, it kind of feeds that that whole culture, doesn't it? I mean, absolutely, absolutely brilliant. I think, you know, he kind of gave the example of how that was reflected in the feedback from their customers. So you can kind of see how, how it's not only internally inspiring, but that's actually also externally inspiring for, you know, their relationship with all of their customers. So yeah, I think it was a very powerful lesson. Yeah, that's um, a- absolutely great. And uh, obviously, that actually wraps up this latest episode uh, that we're recording in partnership with Taito. If you want to find out more about Quantum Metric, then their website is very simply uh, quantummetric.com. Uh, we'd love to hear your comments on today's chat. You can uh, share those via our Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, or Twitter feeds, or in the comments of the YouTube version of this podcast. And those are all linked from the top of the website at csuitepodcast.com, where you'll also find all our previous shows and supporting show notes, plus links to where you can follow us for automatic downloads of each episode via the likes of Spotify and Apple. And if you like what you heard, then please do give us a positive rating and review. Um, We're, of course, available on all podcast apps. Just search for the C-Suite podcast and hit follow or subscribe. You can also subscribe to the Without Borders podcast from our partners at Taito. All the details for that are on their website, so just head to taitopr.com and click on the podcast link in the top nav bar. If you are a unicorn leader, and uh, you'd like to be part of this series, then please do get in touch via the contact form on the website at csuitepodcast.com. Plus, of course, anyone can uh, get in touch with us with any feedback that you may have. And finally, you can also reach me via Twitter using at Russ Goldsmith, or you can find me on LinkedIn. But for now, thanks for listening and goodbye.